I don't think we talk enough about the stressors that compound the way that people show up at work, are able to perform at work, and what happens when they leave work. We don't get a holistic picture of people's lives. You have to prove yourself, you have to show that you really mean it without the context. You know, if you go back home to a dangerous neighborhood, it's not the same. And that means that in the morning, by the time you get there, your cortisol levels have already risen. And people don't pay enough attention to the broader context. Culture first. 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 I'm your host Damon Klotz, and you are listening to Culture First, a podcast where you'll hear stories about why being intentional about your company culture can create a better world of work. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Culture First podcast with me, your host, Damon Klotz. What you're about to hear is something that I'm sorry for not letting you listen to much, much earlier. I have been holding it back from you, but before I let you know why I've been holding it back, let me first introduce today's incredible guest. Psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author Esther Perel is recognized as one of today's most insightful and original voices on modern relationships. She's fluent in nine languages, helms a therapy practice in New York City, and serves as an organizational consultant for Fortune 500 companies. Her celebrated TED Talks, some I'm sure that you've seen more than once, have garnered more than 20 million views. My original podcast with her was called Relationships at Work, and it is the most downloaded episode of this show and with very good reason. Esther's work has been needed in the workplace context for a long time. However, for much of her career though, she didn't actually focus on workplace content. She focused her work as a therapist, author and speaker on the subjects of infidelity, marriage breakdowns and relational intelligence. In this episode, you're actually going to hear Esther talk about the moment that she knew that she wanted to take this topic of relationships and bring all of her work into the workplace. And for the first time ever, you're finally going to hear from start to finish with no interruptions, no edits, you're going to hear my unfiltered, unedited conversation with Esther. Before you do though, there's a couple of things that I think you should know in order to help understand the context around this episode. So the first thing is that this episode was originally recorded in person at CultureAmp's Culture First conference back in 2019. Now, I feel very lucky to be able to call Esther a colleague and a friend, as in the years since we've worked on multiple projects together. But what you're about to hear is a lot of nervous energy and excitement from me, as this was the first time that we'd sat down together in person. I think another thing to probably call out is that even though this conversation took place pre-pandemic, you're going to quickly learn that the topics we were talking about back then are still some things that we're struggling with today. Another moment that I thought might need a little bit of context is you're going to hear me talk a little bit about my life as an expat, the fact that I was an Australian living in the US where I, I lived for several years. But today I'm recording this voiceover for this episode back in Australia where I now live again. And it was an interesting moment for me to reflect on some of those personal struggles that I was having with this idea of 
being a caregiver from afar and how we sort of balance work and family. So just wanted to let you know that I have made it back to Australia. And then I think finally is that this conversation really is, you know, by showing you from start to finish how we sort of thought about this conversation, it's a great opportunity to be reminded of the foundational elements of relational intelligence along with the real takeaways that are going to help you build a better world of work. So that's the background. If you're wondering where should we begin, we begin at the very start as I ask Esther, what would she like to know about me in order for us to have a great conversation? Thank you. So I know quite a bit about you. I've seen you talk a couple of times. I've sort of, you know, seen your work. You know very little about me. That's right. So what do you want to learn about me first? This is a question that I ask actually when I see couples in my office and after they've told me lots of things, I often say, is there anything you would like to know about me? Mm. But yes, I'd love to know who I'm speaking with, you yeah. know, and and why you decided to talk to me yeah. and what it is that you heard that you find relevant to who you are and to what you do. So you can start anywhere you want. Okay, I can start with that. <sighs> Um, I think the first time I heard you, it was at a conference. It was a workplace, co- you know, workplace conference about technology. But you were speaking about relationships, mm-hmm. and you were speaking about. I think the core thing for me was language, and I've always thought about the role of language when it comes to being able to express ourselves or being able to sort of be our true self. If we can't use language to do that, how else do we do that? Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is like everyone needs to hear this. And I, I thought back about my time growing up, my relationship with my family, my relationship with others, and I was like. You're giving people new words or at least the ability to know that the words are already in them to express themselves. Which conference was that? Uh, so it was called Unleash and it was in Europe. That yeah. was my first. Your first like, workplace um, conference? Workplace or? conference yeah. ever. Wow. I mean, I had spoken to LinkedIn just before, but this was really the beginning of my transition and thinking this is the time where for the first time everything that we have learned in our offices mm. is becoming intensely relevant for the workplace. So Amsterdam was very significant for me. And not only for what I said, but for hearing the reaction of the people to what I was saying. So that was very confirming. But you come from journalism, you come from... No, I've got a bit of a a different background. So studied uh, business. Yeah. I originally wanted to be a sports agent. And then I was like, that's just maximizing, (laughs) you know, earning capacity for people. I think they've got that. I want to have maybe a little bit more meaning in my Mm -hmm. work. So I actually picked human resources to study um, on a bit of a whim. So I didn't really know what I wanted to choose. And I felt felt really in love with the idea of helping people find work that matters to them and actually maximizing the potential of humans at work. I looked around and so many people just really didn't enjoy their jobs. And I went back to like my first ever job working Mm -hmm. in like the fast food industry. And like, I was like, I, can, I cannot do this forever, right. right? Tell me, what is the data? It's 60 something percent of people that find themselves very unfulfilled or just even miserable in the workplace just, at all levels of the industries, yeah. right? Lacking connection, lacking <laughs> meaning, not feeling like they're developing, um, not feeling like that this work really matters, like having a sense of purpose. So very early on, I was like, one, I want that for me. And two, I want to try and instill that in others. So did a lot of speaking about sort of, you know, the future of work and what's happening, how to use technology in the workplace, how to adapt to sort of, you know, innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I've had many di- different lives, actually. So to be here having this conversation with you, uh, I see it as like a bit of a full circle moment in my career where I sort of started learning about this. I've sort of lived four different, five different lives, 
And now I'm here to kind of just talk about the power of workplace culture with people like yourself. So the thing that changed is that anybody 25 years ago who would have said four or five different lives would be 20 years older than you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's in, the contraction of... A... <laughs> in 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so like that's one thing that you have spoken about before is the idea of if you can have more than one relationship right. with the same person. Right. And now I feel like I'm having more than one career. In the in, same company. In the same body and in the, in the same company. Right. Yeah. But I think that that's really one of the challenges of the moment is for people in their romantic life, yes, is can I have a new relationship with the same person, which in effect is going to be, you know, a different story. Mm. It's a different story. Can you write more than one story with the same person? And I think it's the same in the workplace. Is Do you have to change jobs to go and do new things? Or can you, in, within the job, actually have different career paths, but the frame is large enough that it can encompass these changes? Yeah. Um, but, you know, even when you talk about uh, that you want a sense of purpose or fulfillment, I think that for most of history, the only people who could hope for this kind of stuff at work were artists. Mm. I mean, if you went to work in the field, you didn't think about fulfillment. And if you went to work in a factory, you certainly didn't think about no. purpose so this is a really an amazing thing that people you went for purpose in religion you didn't mm. go for purpose in work because so much of our, mm. our identity is now wrapped up in where we work enormous yeah. enormous i had a dinner this week about 25 people and i thought you know we're gonna not talk about and introduce ourselves by what we do that's gonna be deadly we are more than that yeah and let's see what would happen if we spend the whole evening talking about ourselves without having to talk about what we do. Mm. And what was interesting was to see some of the people who were anxious that they couldn't use that lens to introduce themselves and some who were anxious that, well, how can I talk to you if I don't, I can't place you kind of mm. thing. Because you can place people in multiple ways. I think that in itself should be a, a golden rule for gatherings at this moment is, is having people meet without having to start with what they do. This is very American too, by the way. Yeah, and as someone who's... Or Anglo. I'm from Australia. I've only been living in the United States for four years. And I think one of the things that I've had to learn is that like, you actually need to promote yourself a little bit more because it's, you know, it's a very American thing to kind of you know, default to that way. But to have a conversation with someone for an hour without saying where you work or what your job title mm, is. Refreshing. How, how important you are or whether that person can help you changes the conversation. Yeah. So I was at another gathering and it began like this, where people started saying, and I just thought there's 15 of us here. This is going to be long. And I, as the number two person, I said, you know, can I, do you mind? I would just like to suggest something. I thought, you know what, instead of saying what you do, maybe we could go around and each of us just talk about what it is that we've been thinking about lately. Mm. What's been on your mind? What mm. is occupying you? And the next person starts talking about how she just lost her father. And it's like, you know, then you're interested, right? Because you're thinking about your loss, your parents, your histories. Then the next person talks about how she lost her pet, her dog. And then now we're talking. And the next one is talking about how he's actually thinking about the fact that he's done a lot of things for money. And now he would like to actually do things for meaning. Right. And an hour and a half later people were riveted listening to 15 different stories and it didn't go around like this. Mm. The person who finishes chooses who they want to hear next. Right, popcorn style. So that, exactly, so that you don't have the preparation for, you know, when is it my turn? And it was a whole, I mean, people left full mm. rather than, oh, you know, 
bad networking. What's on your mind lately? What's on my mind lately? That's a beautiful question. Lots of things. Um, I mean, the first thing that was on my mind yesterday was about this talk that I was going to give at Culture M. And, and, you know, I was excited about a few concepts, a few ideas that kind of popped up when I was thinking about it. And I just thought, will they find it as exciting as me? Will they find that relevant? Is that, is that as interesting to them as it is to me? Mm. It's like you jump on something, you know, and you say, Identity economy. This is what is going on. This is what you just talked about. Identity economy. How, when did the economy, when did the workplace become one of the prime, prime places for where we go and develop our sense of who we are? Yeah. And then, and then I thought, um, this idea that feedback has become more difficult because we are experiencing a, a lessening of this what we are doing now, you and I, mm. right? Talking to each other without an interruption. You know, at this point, the only place people can actually experience that is when they are patients in a therapist office. They get an hour mm. of undiluted, device-free attention. Where else can you get that these days? The, there you know? really isn't that much space in society for that anymore. So I was thinking about all of that, you know, attention. I was thinking about how people would hear what I have to say and and how I stumbled upon suddenly thinking about work. Mm. And it's a fantastically broad continent. So when I stumble on a subject, and it's one of these that has tentacles, because work is so vast, mm. it's exciting. I feel like, man, I'm gonna have I'm not gonna be bored for the next five years. Is it like it's like a new new a new career for you again? Because you get to take yes. like you are still you and I am still me, but we apply ourselves in our sense of meaning exactly. into a brand new way and yeah. it reinvigorates you. And yeah, like when I think about myself, it's just like someone could have labeled me in many different ways. I was a social entrepreneur. I was, you know, a mental health advocate. Mm-hmm. I was a digital marketer. I was mm-hmm. a HR consultant. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, then I joined a tech startup and now maybe I'm just a podcast host and someone who can have a conversation. But like I am the sum of all those things as well. That's right. And That's right. we always show up with all of our experience, but then we can apply it in a brand new way. I mean, that's what travelers do. Mm. No, I think in in a way you are a traveler. I think anybody who lives in a foreign country Mm. does that naturally all the time, but you don't always reveal your sources. Like all the parts of you are not revealed, but they all show up together. My parents, you know, ask me quite often, when am I going to move back home? Mm -hmm. And I say, well, you do know what you called me. And And they say, Damon, I'm like, and Damon backwards is nomad. Oh, wow. So when you say, why don't you move home? It's like, you probably shouldn't have called me that. But I think it's just a curious mindset. It's about wanting to explore the world and see the world and put yourself in a new environment where you actually become shaped as well by that context. When did you know you would leave? I've left a few times. I've left and I've come back. And then, but I think I always want to be somewhere outside of my comfort zone. And are you the only one in your family who is, are the others the rooted ones and you are? I'm the eldest of four boys. Oh, wow. And the other three are all back in Australia. Um, So, yeah, like it's hard as well, like being on the other side of the world. Um, I'm going back for a wedding in Australia this weekend. Uh I'm there for 48 hours. And then I come back to the, yeah, then I come back to the US. So it's, um, yeah. Do you know what's my association to Australia? My father had a friend who was in Australia who came like him from Poland, but went as a refugee to Australia after the war. And 
I must have been seven years old, six years old, and he came on a ship to Belgium, mm. this huge ship that he had been on sea for three weeks. And we went to the harbor in Antwerp to pick him up. And I said, where is he coming from? And my dad said, il vient d'Australie. And that was like this continent that, and then I finally went for the first time last mm. month. And did <laughs> I've it, been waiting to go to Australia. Did it live up to your expectations after all that time? I mean, it's a place where you travel super far mm. that doesn't look that different from here. <laughs> I've actually heard someone say that before. It's they go, a, you, you fly all this way and it looks like any other city that you might see. It's a kind of an outpost of the UK mm. and somewhat of... The, so it's very interesting. You expect if you go that far that you're going to land in something that is completely different. And it's not. Mm. So that was one of the... Now, besides that, I enjoyed it a lot. I went to Uluru as well and nice. um, and... I was also super well received because I was headlining Vivid and, and, and beginning to take this whole thing about work. Mm. I like portable topics. Yeah. I like portals, topics that invite explorations that are very vast. And I like portable topics. So I'm doing this new podcast that's called How's Work. Incredible name. And you like it? Oh, I'm, yeah. Because it's just—it's a question that we get asked all the time. Yes. And it's a question that's typically answered without the true answer. How's work? Yeah, pretty good. Fine. Busy. Like, you don't get any sense of meaning or understanding about how is actual work right. when people answer it in that way. But, yeah, I'm, I'm sure if you walked around and asked 10 people how's work, you just get those, like, same sort of just, you know, very short replies. So, so it's, you know, we literally closed the title. Yes. I mean, I've had this as the working title for a while now, but then we came up with five or six other titles, mm. some of which I thought were very interesting. But in effect, yes, I am a person who asks questions. That's, mm. that's what drives my conversations. And I always did. So, how's work? That's kind of how I heard it, you know, but then they cut the so. So it remained how's work. And I think it's, it opens, you know. So now when you really say, I want to hear, mm. then you're going to get, a 45-minute podcast yeah. that's going to delve into what are the issues around relationships that people encounter at work and how their relationship dowry mm. that they bring from their own history comes to work with them every day in ways that we are not nearly as aware of. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that it's bringing a clinical perspective to the workplace, to HR and to culture and to you know, people, director of people, the, all the people who deal with the relationships and the cultures of work. I yeah. think to me, the challenge today is, you know, we have worked on these things for a long time, very intensely in our office, mm. we therapists, clinicians. And I, I wanted, when I did, where should we begin? I wanted to bring out the therapeutic principles from the office into the public arena. I wanted to take the, the therapeutic practice and make it free and available to the whole world. And now I think that I want to do that and bring that knowledge to the workplace. And I think that the meeting of these two is going to be something very rich. I could not agree more. And I truly want to help you up with that because so many of my best conversations with people who are not in the people space or the cultural space <coughs> or the HR space is normally around like dealing with workplace issues or relationships and they turn to people in this space for advice. So I feel like you can bring a different sort of lens to it as well, which is going to be powerful. One of the core concepts that you talk about is relational intelligence. Right. So like how would you describe that to someone simply? And then I want to dive into like how that shows up in teams. 
Well, relational intelligence is about how you connect. It's about how you establish trust, how you overcome betrayal, um, how you either engage or avoid in conflict. It's how you manage the interaction, the interpersonal relationships that you have with other people. It's the stories that you tell yourself and that determine that the way that you will communicate either with curiosity uh, and collaboration, either with reluctance and, uh, and suspicion. Mm. And it is the ability to see from a multiple perspective, meaning you look at a situation, a relation situation, you need self-awareness and you need relational awareness. I've talked a lot, especially the people who did work on emotional intelligence. It's about self-awareness. Mm. And I think that plenty of people have gone and know themselves very well. What they don't know is the effect they have on others. They're kind of blind to it sometimes. That's a relational perspective, right? It's like when people come and they say, I've done a lot of individual therapy. That's great. That means that you've looked at your own belly button. Mm. But couples therapy, relationship therapy is not about what's here. It's about what's here. Mm. The space between. It's the space between. And you can feel all kinds of things, the effect of those things on the relationship. For example, depression, negativity. I can feel low. And inside I feel helpless and I feel deflated and I may even feel defeated and I feel no energy. And I feel. But interpersonally, I wield so much power because everybody on my team, when there is one person like that, is busy trying to push me to motivate me, to get me to see something better, to, uh, to, to lift me. And my gravity is ultimately often going to make all these other people feel as low and deflated as me. Mm. So the weakness on the inside is sometimes the power interpersonally. Mm. And all kinds of, that's the shift of perspective of thinking relationally, is what's happening between, what's your effect on others, not just what do you feel inside. What are some of the ways that you would encourage teams to actually build a stronger sense of this inside of, of their team? And is this something that has to be done as a collective or can an, like, <coughs> just two individuals within a team actually work on this? Both. Yeah. I think some things are done in pairs, some things are done in triads, some things are done in the whole group. Mm. Um, I think the power of groups is incredible and is often not nearly taken into account. The, the power of being supported by a whole group I just went to a men's retreat. I was alone, one woman with 60 men for three days. You know, and I saw these men basically working on developing emotional intelligence and relational intelligence. That's really all they were doing is learning to be vulnerable, learning to trust, learning to open up, learning to not just live by code. This happened to be, and their code is their code as a man at home and as a man in the workplace. And, you know, yeah. it was an incredible thing to watch. Um, and, but I think sometimes you do things two people together. Um, you know, in the old way, the old schools, they used to have people walk in the morning, take walks and talks. Um, I think that would be an amazing thing to bring back is to help people connect and relate while they move, mm. while they move. Um, we are sitting now, but it's static. Yeah. It's like if we were walking and we were actually both walking and looking in parallel, you know, parallel play, we'd, we'd be able to probably say all kinds of things that we're not necessarily going to say when we do this. Right. So you need both. I tend to not think it's either this or that, but sometimes there is too much of this and not enough of that. How much does the environment play? And when I think about environment, I think like 
where you're actually meeting? Is it happening in an office, not in an office? The type of meeting room that you're meeting in, whether you can see someone. Like so many meetings happening around the world now are virtual. Oh, la, la, so la. Me ha- too. My company, we do it too. Yeah. How do you build relational intelligence when you're actually lacking a lot of the you in, don't. in person? You don't. You flatten the relationship. The screen life is 2D. It's flattening. And you don't get to see the nuances. And you know instantly when you're talking on a Zoom call and somebody is actually reading their message at the same time. And you are put on pause. And you realize that, I mean, look, there's a very important term these days. I didn't even talk about it in the talk today. But I do think it's it's one of the very important concepts. People have often talked and are talking more and more today about loneliness and that people feel isolated and, you know, the virtual communications of work is part of that. There's a term that comes from grief that Pauline Boss introduced that is called ambiguous loss. Mm. Have you ever heard of ambiguous loss? Only because of you. Because of me. Yeah. I never thought in my life I would be using it to describe the social interactions of now, right? It's when people are physically present but psychologically gone. Mm. Like they're compromised. They're absent because they're ill, because they have Alzheimer's, or because they are psychologically present, but physically gone, as in they're absent, they're kidnapped. Now, in a virtual thing, you often have a situation where a critical person isn't there, but everybody is talking as if that person is extremely central to the project. Or you have people that are physically there. Mm. You actually see their name, but you won't see their picture because God knows what else they're doing. I really think that the 3D needs to be recaptured in any way we can. You know, they're taking surgeons now to museums and to art classes in order to give them back the touch and the sensation of the tip of the finger so that they can do the microsurgeries that they need to do. I think it's the same thing for people who work together. They should cook together. Mm. They should do real physical things that that involve the senses. Um, because that's how we relate. We, we see people, we hear them, we touch them, we smell them. And if all of that becomes aseptized, it does change your experience of the social environment. So yeah. I think we all have the reality that people work remote. That's fine. And as much as you can, there is nothing replaces it. And I, I know it because as a therapist, I work still in my office, in one of the only techno-free environments. And I do Skype sessions and I do, but with people that I know. But every time they're in my room, I can do this. And when you're upset and I do that, that has no connection with anything that I can try to do through the damn screen that I can't get, you know, we can't live without touch. You can't show that you're truly there for someone in no. a way that Plus, only it calms the nervous system when I touch you. If yeah. I do the bony handles, the shoulders, the knees, the places where you anchor a person, the back of the neck, like we hold a baby, it says, I'm here for you. It's like, what the hell are we talking about? Trust, if the basic way that people learn to trust that you're there for them is when you are physically there and you put your hand on them in a loving and caring way. It's like we are we, we, we use a word, but we have tr- taken away the, the basic ways that that word actually gets imprinted on us. Mm. Starting with trust and starting with that relationship, I think is really important. When I think about some of the strongest workplace relationships I've built, a lot of it has been because we've been able to connect on something outside of work That's first right. That's to right. understand each other and just get to know each other. And then we've built really strong working relationships. But when you go straight to work, 
and try to build trust in a, in a form that can only show up in decisions or meetings or projects. It's a very different level of trust. And I think it's... But that's of- different from what Culture M says. Because Culture M says that it is trust, you know, that you trust other people to make decisions. Mm. And I thought that's just a, a very... It's one of the few things that I thought, that's narrow. Mm. I mean, unless I don't fully understand the way the sentence is constructed, I thought, no, that I agree with you. Like, if it was just trust. It's not like, an intellectual yeah, thing. Yeah. Because we show up with a lot more than just our brains, even though we talk about knowledge workers and, you know, it was Henry Ford who said, you know, I don't want your brain, I just want your hands because, like, I can control your hands. It's really hard to control the brain, Right. right? I mean, but, no, it's a, it's a totally clear that we don't just, there's body, yeah. there's emotion, there's mind, there's all of that shows up at work. But it's a, it, it's the one sentence that I thought, mm. I don't, I don't get it. Uh, what, what is meant here? It's probably also the most, the one that people struggle with the most, because uh, it's also about decision making and in a truly global organization, people will be making decisions when you're asleep. Mm-hmm or when maybe you have more context or less context, or maybe you're the expert on that subject, but to move fast, you need to trust someone else to make that decision based on, you know, just a global Yes, workforce. but you could make a decision to, to fire 200 people. The point is that I want you to make decisions that involve me. Mm. You know, when you are, do you have a pen? Not on me, no. Or pl- give me this watch. Sure. I'll show you something. At eight months, you do this. And then suddenly the baby looks and they realize for the first time that the watch still exists, even though they're not seeing it. Mm. And then they start this incredible game where they they throw it on the ground, you pick it up, they throw it on the ground, you pick it up. And they realize that they can bring something back, even Mm. if it's not part of their awareness. It's called object constancy. It is the thing that allows us afterwards to begin to do peekable. Right. Right? This is the foundation of trust. Even when I don't see you, I know you're there. And even though you don't see me, you know I'm there. And then we do peekaboo, and it's like universal, universal game. There's not a child in the planet who hasn't played that. And it is the thing that allows the kid to move away and to know that you will be there when they come back or for you to leave and for them not to panic. That idea that you are carried inside others. You want your company to make decisions in which you you feel that they were thinking about you yeah. and that they were thinking about how much you've invested here or whatever you've done for the company, etc. Just to make decisions is not enough. Yeah. It's you my interest that you need to also demonstrate. That's right. I think trust is what lends relationship a foundational truth that is timeless and that allows me to know that I can rely on you even when I'm not there. Mm. It's exactly the child and the parent. So that I can go and take risks and be vulnerable in a way that makes me feel protected. That's, I think, one of the definitions that, of trust that I think we can translate across cultures. Beautiful. Culture first means culture amp. I'm Didier Elzinger, co-founder and CEO. Together with thousands of customers around the globe, we're co-creating a better world of work. That means enabling leaders to drive their most impressive performance outcomes with real-time insights, data, and predictions. Our podcast is called Culture First because when you get culture right, your business succeeds at a rate never thought possible. Join us at cultureamp.com to see what it's all about. 
got a couple of questions that I want to sort of do more rapid fire with mm-hmm. you. Um, and when I've told people that I was having a chance to have this conversation, I had a lot of people who has you know, some questions that they suggested. So <laughs> I, I hope I do some of them justice. <sighs> what is a sign of a poisonous relationship at work? Contempt. Contempt is the number one. This is John Gutman's work as well. Is the number one horses of apocalypse. Mm. When things go sour between mem- members of a team, should the manager intervene or stay out of it? I think managers should intervene, but the intervention should be the encouragement for the two people or the three people to work out that which is standing in between them. Mm. If the manager can lend themselves as a facilitator of a reconciliation or a clarification process between the others, they should do it. They shouldn't let things fester and they should not also try to just solve a problem themselves. Neither, neither of these two. But hold the space for people to duke it out. What role does love play in the workplace? Ooh, much. You may love your manager, manager may love you, you may love a colleague, you may love your team, you may love what you do, um, you may... You may love the way your company has supported you when you were going through hardships at home. I think um, love is friendship, love is collegiality, love is uh, support. There's a lo- love is, is a verb that is very active that permeates all of these different types of relationships. Should work culture feel like a family, a sports team, a classroom or something else? Work culture should feel like work culture. <laughs> Sometimes it has elements that feel very familial mm. and sometimes it may feel classroomy. Uh, I, sometimes it may have an element of, of, a, of, a, of a solidarity of a sports team. I think the, the groups that you mentioned are identified by, by certain experiences, right? The, the competition, the solidarity, the unity. The familial thing can mean a lot of things. Mm. You know, in this instance, I'm imagining it's meant to be positive elements of families. But, you know, families produce the best and the worst of humankind. Mm. So I think workplace should be workplace. It is a unique thing um, that that hopefully you want to go to when you wake up in the morning. Um, That can be really hard sometimes, but that, uh, that that you want to feel that you have dignity that you can look at yourself in the mirror and you don't think, what am I doing there? That you don't feel disrespected or devalued, that you feel that you have a reason that you that you contribute in some way to do whatever that contribution is that you make. That's the meaning of this. Uh, and that it gives you the opportunity to feed the people that you are responsible for. For many people, that is still the primary reason to work. Mm. And the fulfillment doesn't necessarily come from what they're doing at work. The fulfillment comes from the fact that their work is able to feed six children at home. I think we have to not forget that. Yeah. We've become, you know, white color thinks about the work as the fulfillment. But for many people, the fulfillment comes from being able to be a provider, mm. a protector, a parent, a nurturer, a parent or, or, or a devoted child who is feeding six other siblings who could not come across the ocean or things like that. Yeah. I think fulfillment is essential, but the meaning of fulfillment is not always intrinsic to the work. It's sometimes extrinsic to the work for what it can afford us in other parts of our life. Is that clear? Yeah. No, when I think about my own journey, I'm very, I feel like, I want to do my life's work. I want to make sure this way has got meaning. But ultimately, the first meaning that I was searching for was how do I provide for my family? Because, you know, they didn't uh, go to college. Uh, you know, I 
was the highest earner in my family when I was 20 years old. That's right. So like for me, it was actually like, I want to be successful first. Yes. And I want to do things that are, are valued and is valuable, but I also want to do it with meaning. And also, you know, you don't want one to going too far away from the other. And you even shared that story earlier about that person at dinner who was, I've made all the money and now I want meaning. Right. But did you take your success and share it with your family or was it for you alone? I would like to think I'm sharing it with my family and helping them out in ways that only I can based on the work that I've been able to do. Okay, I think that is that is an, a whole other level of fulfillment, which is not spoken about enough. Mm. I think in our individualistic perspective, we talk about the successes just for you. For so many people, the success is what enables you to take care of an ill person, of a child, of a, of a, of a parent who, can, who, who can't, who, you know, you're the only one who's going to go. And those stories are not told in the workplace. And I think they would humanize the workplace so much. You know, I had a, a situation of a person who was really difficult and often late and everybody was, until one day the person talked about the fact that before coming to work, they had an hour and a half every morning where they went to see their ill parents that they were taking care of. And, you know, like, did it need three months before that story was told? Yeah. Then instantly everybody organized around, how can we help him to come, you know, we understand... And I'm thinking, this is, was this always like this? I can't imagine. People I think are people fearful knew. about talking about some of those things. Yeah. Like they feel like they might be judged. Yeah, I'm going to be seen as not ambitious. Like yeah. I'm, like a, instead of I'm a full human being who's able to give and think about my ailing dad, I find that is a problem today. Mm. I know I've spoken a lot with my colleagues around like the idea of I'm out here and living in this foreign country and I do want to create wealth and be successful and find meaning and all that. But I've left my family, which is actually who I'm trying to support as well. Right. So the thing that I wrestled with is doing all of that but still sort of feeling removed. And, like, the idea of uh, home had become quite triggering because I've built two homes now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've got a home out here and then I've got a home back somewhere right. else. Have you ever seen where you live? No. My mum came out to the United States and she was able to see my home out here. Uh-huh. I think that helps her really yes, understand. Yes, completely. I yeah. think it changes everything. When when your family has seen your other home, mm. it allows you for the first time to really weave a thread between them and to create a, a different sense of continuity rather than I know their home and they know me there, but nobody has a single image from what my life looks like here and no Skype is going to replace that. Yeah. I think she was actually kind of, she was blown away a little bit by the the love that my colleagues were showing to her mm. and like like you know the cherished friendships that, that, that I have and all that and she was like wow like she was didn't really know how to like let that settle with her like you had spoken about her and like they were expecting her and you had like she was more present in your life than yeah. she may have thought and that thinking that she had been somewhat deleted and yeah she's like why do these people uh, keep hugging me <laughs> yeah so nice yeah What do we not talk about enough at work? What do we not talk about? So I think so many things. I really sometimes think that we talk about stuff that doesn't nearly matter. But uh, what do we not talk about? We don't talk about enough at work the fact that, I don't know the number, but it's something like 47 millions of Americans are caregivers. We don't talk enough at work that uh, caregivers of their parents, of their uh, of their family members, of their children, that people are not just responsible for themselves and the stress of caregiving. Um, I think we don't talk enough about the vulnerability 
indicators, the index of what are the things that make people vulnerable uh, because of their housing situation, because of their financial situation. I don't think we talk enough about the stressors that compound the way that people show up at work, are able to perform at work, and what happens when they leave work. Um, so that we don't get a holistic picture of people's lives. Um, you know, you, you have to prove yourself, you have to show that you really mean it without the context. I think what is often taken missing in a lot of the conversation at work is context, the broader context. Um, you know, if you go back home to a, a dangerous neighborhood, it's not, it's, a, it's not the same. You, you know, and that means that in the morning, by the time you get there, your cortisol levels have already risen. And people don't pay enough attention to the broader context. I think the same thing is true in relationships. Relationships take place in context rather than just what happened, mm. you know, and this kind of very concrete manifest way of dealing with things. Um, I think that one of the things that is really an issue today which I didn't bring up in the talk, but I watch it more and more, is when people leave. I have a, a, a person that is a contemporary, and he's been at this company, um, I think, 12, 13 years. People that he spoke with every day. And he had a, a difficult time. He was ill. And, um, and I asked, how many people call you? So I host a lot of dinners. Yes. And basically, I have this, for the last two, three years... Most of my dinners are unified conversations. Yeah. I know people chit-chat for a while. You don't have to worry next to whom you sit because that's not going to be the person you're going to be talking to. And so now I was in LA and the host invited people in my honor because I was staying with him. And I just, and he, and I, and he said, you know, do you want to just lead the conversation? And I thought, this is 25 people. What are we going to do? I'm not going to go around. Like, so I just, uh, I staged a whole unified conversation. But I started by saying, we are not going to talk about what we each do. We're going to have an amazingly curious, you know, awakening without knowing who, you know, what people have done before they came here. I think that sometimes when people leave or when people are not showing up at work, there is not nearly enough uh, checking in or when people have a loss mm. it's not enough to do an emoji on Facebook it's just not enough yeah. and I think that the managers could use the rallying of their team in support for the person who's going through some difficulty imagine I mean look you you, you lost your parent or your mother is sick and you have to go take care if you have a good social network, the people in your life are going to organize around making sure that somebody comes to cook, that you have meals, that the basic stuff that people really need help with. Imagine that as a manager, you took your team and you said, we're going to support Damon, right? And, and, and so that for the next two weeks, you know, uh, and uh, do you understand how people would work differently? Yeah. It's like use life to create a stronger team rather than hope that you can create a stronger team by, by creating a separation and a segregation from life. Or asking people to go to team building as opposed to actually just being there for each other in correct, the team. Correct, correct, exactly. So many of the things we like create false environments That's right. to build Artificial. relationships That's as opposed right. to actually just fostering good relationships with each I other. I can't agree with you more. That's my, that is my philosophy. I don't, you tell me because you do the research if yeah. this space, if this uh, proves itself to be accurate. But in any case, it's how I see it. People are always looking for more opportunities to learn and to feel like they're growing. 
and to build relationships at work. But like when we take people off site to do that, we're actually lacking that, you know, what actually happens between someone. Because it's one thing to do it in a training session or in a classroom. It's another thing just to be able to show up and actually build a relationship with someone in the moment. So I, I think with the work that you're doing and the way that the world's going, we need more skills like this and conversations like this to inspire people to do it in the moment as humans, as opposed to trying to remove ourselves into a different environment to try to be more human. But you need managers who can do it yeah. and who can, you know, we're asking companies, which is the managers in the companies, to do something which they themselves sometimes don't do for themselves. Mm. So um, you need to teach the teacher. Yeah, definitely. Do so you need teacher training? I want to paint a picture of a situation that mm -hmm. I'm sure happens at organizations around the world. I'm a manager. Mm -hmm. I manage someone who then manages employees. Mm -hmm. But I also have a relationship with the employees. And they tell me that they're not really liking maybe the management style of this person or that they're not getting what they need from this manager. In this situation, do you use that information that you have access to to then coach and build a better relationship with the person that you're managing? Or do you actually try, go straight to the employees and fix that for them? No, I actually have a beautiful example of this where the manager, it was, you bring it to the manager and you say, And you prepare that manager to actually do a 360 with the employees and have them tell it, but not as in what am I unhappy with, but as in what could make you a better manager? What are the things that we know that you could do that would really change things for us? Mm. And you facilitate the conversation between the manager and the team. I've seen it done and I, I, when it, and when it's done respectfully, it's not easy to listen to, but Man, you know what to do afterwards. So many of you. And you're not busy like who said what? Yeah. And who who said that? No, but that person doesn't really have validity to say that because you know, and then you discredit everything and because it becomes gossip rather than, you know, um we believe that, you know, the things that you do well are this, but there's a whole range of things that we, so many of us here have had some real challenge with. And uh and to be given the opportunity to say out loud, first of all, I can talk behind you back plenty, but if you invite me to actually say things to you in person, I'm going to think about what I'm going to say. So now I'm becoming responsible. And so I have to articulate very clearly. And why am I saying this? And in what way am I saying it? Then you have 10 people, eight people, whatever the number on the team. I, and, and, and you hold that manager, you, you know, you're behind them. You literally you hold their back and, And then you say, um, that's the direct root of the information rather than you tell me, then a uh, broken telephone. One of the things that I've taken away from this conversation, one of the many things I've taken away from this conversation is actually like, the link between therapy and what's happening in the workplace is in therapy, you're creating, you're opening a space for people to have a conversation they need to have with each other. I think also in the workplace, the role of the manager is to open a space where people can have this conversation with each other as opposed to in a place where, like you said, behind closed doors, through gossip, like actually just creating a space for people to have a better relationship. But that also means that the manager needs those skills to know That's how to right. hold that space. That's right. Because otherwise you have triangulations. Otherwise you have coalitions. Otherwise you have dark alliances. Otherwise you have splitting where people, you know, and all these 
everybody understands that these are the, the, the corrupt dynamics of relationships. They exist in every relational system, families, friendship, you know. Um, but communication or these conversations is prime, is as much about training the speakers as it is about supporting the listeners. That's the piece that is really important to understand. You stand not behind the person who talks. You stand behind the person who has to hear it. Mm. It's a different type of support. That's a thing that I had to teach when I, you know, what doing with the couples therapy. I say, support the person who talks. But the minute they started and they've got it, you've, and they're bold enough to do it, now move and go and literally do this for the person who has to receive all of this. Because mm. the challenge is not what is being told. The challenge is what will happen with what was said. What do you think is the most powerful behavior that people can learn when it comes to actually creating more innovation inside of a company? I think, you know, this thing about innovation, it's really the question in every system at this point, right? I mean, what is a thriving relationship? It's the relationship that can flexibly dance between our need for security and our need for adventure between what has been continuous and what is new and disruptive, between tradition and curiosity, basically. I think these are the two sets of fundamental human needs. They are the two sets of fundamental needs of any relational system. Um, and so what promotes this in novelty? It's, it's basically a culture that welcomes newness, that welcomes the stuff that doesn't fit, you know, which is... I come from Belgium, a country where actually for a long time you would say to somebody innovation, they would say in Belgium, pas possible. But the moment you say, why don't we, they say, we've tried it, it didn't work. It doesn't, we don't do it this way. And they would basically reinforce the past. Mm. You know, it's the circles, the past, the present, the future. And then you have cultures or societies that have a big future and a small past in which a new idea is always welcome. And I think it really needs both. And some periods more of one or the other. It's not a static equilibrium. Equilibrium actually is never static, to put it like that. So it's about curiosity. It's about taking risk. It's about um, pushing through even when you're not sure and sticking to it, staying with it, because there is actually a promise, but it's not immediately available. Um, being able to say out loud when you're afraid that it may not work even though you continue to stay in it. Um, and um, trying, and, and it involves new experiences that take you out of your comfort zone. So you're, I think that whenever you have divergent conversations, you don't put all the engineers in one room. You put the engineers together with the salespeople together. You know, the moment you speak with people who look at the world differently from you, you see things. I mean, I had just had an incredible experience where we were hiring and we were five of us. And there is, I am the more intuitive, um, relationally, or, and, and, I, and I have this genius director of product, but he thinks systematically. You know, he, every, the things are studied. There is research behind the things he says. You don't do a little thing because you need to know the effect of the little thing on the whole thing. So it's another way of being in the world. And we would have meetings with potential uh, employees. And what he saw, I was like, where did you hear that? And when you asked that question, she answered, it was like being at the movies and seeing another movie. And I thought, this is what makes it for rich. 
And we ended up hiring somebody completely different than what I thought was going to be the person we would hire. That's innovation. When you land in a completely different place and it feels completely integrated. A huge thank you to Esther Perel for joining me on the Culture First podcast. I hope all of you really enjoyed being able to listen from start to finish into a conversation that truly showcases Esther's amazing skills as a listener. We're able to get insight into sort of the questions that she was asking of me in order for us to have a great conversation. And also, I think the way that we were trying to balance being generous with each other's knowledge and answers where I was learning so much from her and she was asking really great questions back to me in terms of my experience of the workplace in order to help you as the listener unpack what is really happening when it comes to our workplace relationships. So stay tuned because right now I'm about to go through my episode summary as well as share with you three tips for the individual, the manager and the organization that you can take away from this episode in order to make your workplace 10% better. As I was listening back to this conversation, there are a few things that really stuck with me. So I want to list them out for you right now. The first one is Esther's ability to use words and stories to help us unlock experiences and emotions that we struggle to comprehend. Things like identity economy and ambiguous loss. The stories that she shares around those, for me personally, hits home and I can feel the moment that I've felt that for the first time and it's gave me a lot of clarity. So I just love the way that she shares those stories. The second one was this idea of um, when she was talking about how technology is flattening the workplace. Like I said at the start, this conversation happened pre-pandemic, but what we're really seeing is this whole idea of the 2D versus the 3D workplace, and it's still playing out right now all around the world. The next one was this idea of standing behind the person who's hearing the hard news. How do we really rally around and support someone, especially from a team perspective, when they're going through a hard time and create cultures where One, it's okay to share it, and two, it's okay to really help someone. I love the idea that we would be having a different conversation if we were walking, this whole idea of parallel play. If we were walking while having that conversation, it would have been completely different based on the environment versus me just sitting down side by side. The next one was the power of really, really listening to someone, getting uninterrupted time to listen and give great feedback. Esther kind of joked that the only time people really get that these days is if they're speaking to a therapist. But I'd say that in a culture first company, we can all make time to make sure that we're being a generous listener for our team and our colleagues. And then maybe a bonus takeaway is that I got to play peekaboo with Esther Perel, which is something that I never thought I'd say, but that happened. So there's some of my takeaways. We also used this line from Esther in our teaser episode for this season but I want to play it over one more time. Use life to create a stronger team rather than hope that you can create a stronger team by creating a separation and a segregation from life. We want each of these episodes to leave you not only inspired by the stories that you're hearing, but also with really clear actions that you can take away. So here are a few of my suggestions that I think can make your company culture and your employee experience 10% better. Firstly, for the individual I'd encourage you to spend some time reflecting on your relationship diary that Esther mentioned that you're bringing to your work. Whether it's the managers that you've worked under where you didn't feel supported, a team environment where it was really easy to do great work, or a company culture that you worked at where you really left that place feeling like you did not belong. 
reflect on how all of the previous experiences that you've had at work are sitting with you right now in your current role. How are they showing up in this new workplace? And ask yourself, is there a way that you can bring some of that context into your current team to create a stronger feeling of trust and support? Now, for all of the managers listening, Esther said it herself, the power of receiving great feedback, the power of doing a 360 review and writing on your own development goals as a manager. You can start with the self-reflection, but then also go a little bit further and get the wider view of feedback to learn how your behavior impacts others. It's only in the space between where we can really improve on our relational intelligence in the workplace. And if you're only doing this work as an individual, like Esther said, it's like staring down at your belly button. But when you do this work as a collective and when you understand your, the way that your behavior is impacting others, you truly understand relational intelligence. And now finally, for a company. As an organization, reflect. Have you built an intentional culture where stories of real humanity are allowed to be shared or are even encouraged? Or have you intentionally or maybe even unintentionally built a workplace where people don't feel like they can share that part of themselves? The story about the caregiver who let people know why that, you know, sometimes they're late in the morning because they're dealing with an ailing parent, that was really powerful because it showcased that people wanted to rally around that person and as a team support them. But without that context, without that understanding, you might just fill in the gap with assumptions and you might get really frustrated that that, you know, that that's just a colleague who's not showing up on time. So storytelling and by allowing ourselves to bring some of these things in where we feel fit is a great way to humanize your workplace and create an entire company culture built around stories that allow humanity to really thrive. So if you want to discuss any of those takeaways or if you want to sort of have a conversation about what you heard in today's episode, you can reach out to me at Damon Klotz on social media is where you can find me. Feel free to follow me on Twitter or Threads or X or whatever it's called this week. Instagram, uh, you can also reach out directly at podcast at cultureamp.com anytime with questions that you would like answered about the topics that we're discussing. You can share the guests that you would love to hear from with me and potentially is there a type of story or format that you would love us to explore on you know the Culture First podcast? Trust me, I want to learn from your feedback, so please let me know. I've been your host, Damon Klotz, and the Culture First podcast is brought to you by the team here at CultureAmp, the world's leading employee experience platform. Learn more about CultureAmp by heading to cultureamp.com. We believe in creating a better world of work. If that's important to you too, then please subscribe and leave us a review to make sure that you don't miss a single episode and that more people can be part of this Culture First community that we're building together where we're trying to share stories that inspire us all to create a better world of work.